here's the thing. You can get with this, or you can get with that. You can get with this iOS or that Android. You could have got a few hours ago, maybe even just 40 minutes ago by my clock, with this chance for France to repeat or that perfect send-off for Messi. You could get with this Marvel Cinematic Universe or, well, essentially the Batman movies, because what else does DC have going for it, right? Wonder Woman. Wonder, we got a Wonder Woman, we're saying Black Adam, we'll see. Um, Here's the deal, though. Life presents us with daily this or that proposition. And not all are as trivial as a matter of preference. See, family disputes arise that pull us to side with this generation coming up after us or that generation that has come before us. Couples break up and we're left trying not to get triangled between two former lovers as one friend goes this way and another goes that. When time is ticking and money is tight, many of us parents feel caught between this child's need and that child's passion. And into this struggle, our struggle with this or that propositions, the good news of Christmas is that Jesus comes to be Emmanuel, God with us. But to arrive there, we're going to have to back up to what is really a very complex situation that Jeremy has just read into. But I'm going to break it down for you. Let's put it this way. Our story today begins with a king at a crossroads. And to channel Kendrick, channeling Shakespeare, heavy lies the head that chose to wear the crown. King Ahaz of Judah's task is heavy. He's assumed the throne at just 20 years of age, and already his brief reign is marked by instability. The capital city where this scene is taking place, the city of Jerusalem, lies on the fault lines of this conflict between geopolitical powers. And so Ahaz finds himself, at this moment in history, presented with a very sour this or that proposition. On one side threatens the big baddie of the day, the rising superpower of Assyria. And on the other side stands this coalition, this defensive alliance of many smaller nations who have gathered together to try and ward off Assyria. And Jerusalem is dead in the middle. And as anyone who's ever played the board game of Risk knows, this situation presents you with two basic strategies. Either you side with the most powerful player on the board in the hopes that you'll live to roll another turn, or you gang up on them with everyone else. But you can't stay neutral in the middle for too long, or you'll be accused of playing both sides and you'll be easy pickings. So... What'll it be, this or that? Here the whole nation, Isaiah tells us, is caught in the vice between these two enclosing threats. The people, the, the poet says, are shaking with fear, swaying back and forth like a forest of trees in the wind. And like the nameless woman on Tatooine warns, storm's coming up, Ahaz. But Ahaz, unlike Annie, can't run home, though she feels it in her bones. And so Ahaz goes to check on the aqueduct, okay, the aqueduct. Let me explain. What Ahaz is doing is Ahaz knows that his city is about to be surrounded and besieged. And so what he is doing is he is going to check on his water supply. Because as everyone would have known in the ancient world, 
In a siege, the weapon that you're most afraid of would not be a battering ram or even a trebuchet, as impressive as its credentials may have been. What you would have really been afraid of were the weapons of hunger and thirst. And so what Ahaz is doing is Ahaz is taking stock of his supply, asking, how long could my city hold out? Exactly how many days? And based on those calculations, will it lead me to a side with this side or the other, this or that? You know, often, friends, it is in life when we are taking stock of our inventories and trying to figure out what we have to work with that God will come to be with us and give us some sort of call to trust him in some sort of way. So this week, I, I assume that nobody here is checking an aqueduct, but I suspect that many of us are checking our bank accounts. And many of us are checking the notice that says how much the rent is going up in January. And some of us maybe are, are trying to check on our, our GPAs or our test scores or the remaining units we need before we graduate from this program and can move on in life. We're checking all these things. Parents, we're checking the, the support networks that we have. How many babysitters do we have on speed dial? How many willing family members that are of age and in the area? We're all checking on different things to try and figure out what we have to work with. And taking stock is important, as Jesus himself said one time. He said, what king goes to war without first evaluating his strength? Okay, we might say something like, uh, who gets on the freeway and drives out into the fog without checking how much gas they have in the tank? How many people use the guest restroom at their friend's house without checking how much exactly is on that roll, right? <laughs> we need to take inventory. It's not a bad thing. But... As Ahaz is doing this pre-siege assessment of his resources and weighing this and that, a messenger of God arrives on the scene to interrupt his inventory. And here's the funny thing. He's not coming alone. Because in one of the stranger bring-your-kid-to-work days, God tells Isaiah, I want you to take your son with you to go talk to the king. Okay? And it's just sort of a little bit odd to imagine this request. You know, can you imagine Isaiah's like, all right, Come on, little Jasher, like, get your sandals. We're going down to the aqueduct. And he's like, why, Daddy? Because Daddy's got to work today. Why? Well, because someone's got to speak truth to power, son. Why? Because God literally said so. Get your shoes. We're going. Also, please don't tell your mother that I took you to see the king. Like, he's not, not a very good character. But it's very strange. Why does God have Isaiah take Junior? Who benefits? Well, is it the kid? That would be interesting. It's like maybe God wants the younger generation to see how his word is calling out their parents. To be like, this is how God is interacting with adults ahead of time. Or maybe it's because God wants the king and the prophet to have to make their decisions with the next generation literally in view. Like, hey, just as a reminder, whatever you decide today, here's who it's going to affect down the road. So take that into consideration. Maybe there's a mix of motivations, but what we know is that this is an intentionally intergenerational kind of networking meeting that is now taking place. So we think... The good, this is a good thing. The resident holy man is on the scene to make the decision, okay? And maybe this is, a, is kind of a relief to Ahaz. He thinks, what will it be, Isaiah? Do we get with the superpower or the coalition? You just let me know because I'm really on the fence in this moment. And in not so many words, Isaiah says on Yahweh's behalf, 
Why not neither? Why not neither? Well, this is probably the least expected move that Ahaz could have imagined. And a literal translation of Isaiah's opening line would be something to this effect. Be careful to do nothing. That's, what, that's literally what the Hebrew says. So Isaiah really is telling Ahaz this. He's saying that what he is putting his hope in, these political relationships and the infrastructure of his city and the forecast of investors as to where he's going to get the most profit in the long run, all of these forecasts are based on fears that Isaiah says in a poetic uh, idiom. He says that they're going to all die out like the embers of a fire at bedtime. You don't have to worry about those things. Instead, he says this, take heart. And as Jeremy read for us, verse 9, Isaiah tells Ahaz, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. See, what Isaiah is doing is he's offering Ahaz a third way between the two offers that the world has given him, but it's the ever unpopular option of faith which is not merely to believe in some unbelievable theoretical idea in assent to some propositions. It's more like the call to faith is something like a call to radical trust and dependence on God. That's what faith is. And Isaiah is saying, Ahaz, don't put your faith in the kings of this place or the capital city of power in that land. Instead, put your faith in me and my dedication to this place, says the Lord. Now, here's the thing. Like many of us in most days of our lives, Ahaz is not exactly known as being a person of great faith. In a similar sense that he likes to sort of be a free agent and he keeps his political options open, so the Bible tells us he's also the sort of person who hedges his bets by kind of believing in a ton of different gods. But here he and Isaiah have a bit of a back and forth where in response to God offering Ahaz a sign, a divine ask me anything, from the depths of the underworld to the highest heights of heaven. Whatever it is, you name it, I will show you that I'm real, says God. And at this moment, all of the sudden, Ahaz becomes real pious. He turns to God, he says, oh God, I couldn't possibly ask for a sign. I, I don't want to test you. Have you ever noticed how people get all religious when they're in a tight spot? You ever notice that? Like sometimes I get a call, and I know, I know this dude's in a bad place, when he's like, oh, pastor, uh, you know, as the good book says, and I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> like what, what does this guy do? All we like sheep have gone astray. Like, okay, homie, like I get it. It's, it's a bad situation. I don't think God holds this against us, but he's getting real pious all of a sudden. So what's really going on here? Well, what Isaiah seems to be suggesting is that when Ahaz is saying he's refusing to put God to the test, what Isaiah is saying is, no, Ahaz, I think you're refusing God room to put you to the test. And some of us do this. It's really easy to hide a lack of faith under false piety. It's really easy. It's always a popular option, and that seems to be what Ahaz is doing here. But Isaiah gets annoyed and a little bit testy on God's behalf and says, okay, Ahaz, you don't want a sign. Well, you're getting one anyway, whether you like it or not. And his kid pipes in the back, like my dad says this like a lot, you know, about a lot of things. So in order, though, to provide a caption 
for millions of Christmas cards for years to come. And if you haven't sent yours, this is always a popular option. Um, maybe you have this on your fridge at home. Isaiah 7.14 reads this way. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin or young woman will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel, which if you follow that little footnote down in your print Bibles, unfortunately you have to pay extra if it's in the Christmas card, you'll find that Emmanuel means God with us. And this is an endlessly fascinating verse. And I don't want to get bogged down in the academic things, but essentially how it works is that most scholars believe that the, the sign of this child of promise works on multiple levels. So, for example, historically, it sort of seems to point to this rare good king, this dude named Hezekiah, who you can read about in the Bible. But then symbolically, it seems that what Isaiah is kind of envisioning is how God is going to be with his people, this remnant of his people, as they enter and come through an experience of exile from their mother, Zion, their motherland. So it's working on these multiple levels, and we won't get into all of those things. But notice this morning that from the sign, the moment the sign is uttered, it's already a very beautiful image. Because what Isaiah is saying to Ahaz is he's saying, you will, in your experience, find that a mother will become pregnant and will be sitting with this child who is within her and will look around at all of the darkness and chaos in her life and will give birth to that child and look down on his little face and will call him Emmanuel because she believes God will be with him. That's what Ahaz is saying. Isaiah is saying, Ahaz, there is going to be a sign of great faith. You will see. You will see how in, um, in opposition to all of this around you, there will be cause for hope. Ahaz, could you just see it? God will be with you. The problem is that this sign, as beautiful as it is, seems wasted on a faithless king. And as the story will progress, Ahaz decides that rather than um, work with this God who is promising to be with him, to stand in his faith, Ahaz decides, look, man, this is not a viable option. It really is this or that. He sides with the Assyrian bully who comes in to knock out all of his different neighbors, but in return, he becomes a puppet king of Assyria. And under their influence and their um, protection, he takes on all of their religious customs and as the Bible tells us, eventually he offers his own children as living sacrifices to their gods. This is how he responds. He leaves nothing for his children to inherit but a disaster. That's his legacy coming out of this moment. But the story doesn't end there. Check this out. This is interesting. Hundreds of years later, the name of the empire will have changed from Assyria to Rome. God's people are still existing in subjection to pagan rulers, but unexpectedly, Ahaz's name appears 17 generations removed in the genealogy of a humble day laborer named Joseph. You know, the same one who was engaged to be married to that teenager named Mary who was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. You guys ever heard this one? And, and what Matthew does in introducing Ahaz into this is he, he hearkens back to this exact moment in the conversation. He says, all this crazy sequence of events, here's what Matthew says. They took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah in that very exchange with Ahaz, that there would be the birth of a child who will be called Emmanuel, which he reminds us in the very bulk of his paragraph, means God with us. 
And this child of promise grew into his name in unexpected ways. See, when Jesus arrived on the scene, there was always something that people could tell was different about him. Even his opponents couldn't deny that there was this sort of peculiar power to his work and to his teachings. And so many were guessing at his identity. Who was this man? Was he a king or a teacher or a revolutionary or a healer or a prophet or a delusional nobody? All of these were live guesses. But every once in a while, something even more interesting would happen. Because in response to seeing Jesus at work and how God's presence seemed to be located in Jesus and how fine of a distinction you would need to draw to separate the will and work of one from the other, in one biography of Jesus, it recounts a moment when in response to the miraculous power that Jesus was exhibiting against the forces of death and despair, two statements began to circulate through the crowd. First, some people trying to make sense of their experience that day said this, a great prophet has arisen among us. Not with something. But there were others who sort of shook their heads in the crowd that day, and they just looked at Jesus, and they thought about what they'd just seen, and they said this instead. They said, no, today God has visited his people. Emmanuel had come. They had seen Jesus living as God with them. And like Ahaz, so Jesus would become pressed between the powers of his time, very real threats and turmoil in intrigues, between this Roman Empire and its governor Pilate and their puppet king who was still ruling like Ahaz, and that Jewish religious establishment with all of their traditions and expectations and hopes. And Jesus could have chosen to work with any of these sides if only for the sake of doing something expedient and pragmatic, to strategically move and side with the empire, or to form an insurrection to feed a revolt, or if not that, at least to form a coalition for his own personal security. But instead, what Jesus did is he embodied and declared the way of a kingdom that is not of this world, not subject to its inventories or its this or that propositions but set up as an alternative to them. And in response, all the power players of the day turned against him. He gets caught in the middle and in the crossfires. His message is seen as threatening, and so not only do his own people disown him, but the state mocks him and the judicial system fails him until finally his rejection of a crossroads, marked this or that, leads his road to a cross. And still Jesus stays faithful. To his father's plan, to the words of the prophets, to his love for the world, and to the calling of his name to be Emmanuel, God, with us. See, Jesus succeeds where Ahaz failed. And here's the thing for us. Because Jesus stayed faithful, you and I know what it looks like to stand in faith. And so this story could have implications for our lives. For instance, in this way. If we are not alone, if we are truly not left alone to our own resources and devices, and if we're open to the possibility of Jesus' way, then I'd ask you this. How decisive is God's presence with you in your life? Or to ask that in another way that's even more direct, how many decisions have you made because you know God is with you? As in this, as in knowing, if I were all alone, 
I would probably have to choose this or that. But because God is with me, I move in this way. That is the challenge of Christmas and the calling of our Savior being Emmanuel. And I'll be honest, many years ago, I was very much uh, trying to figure out what in the world it would look like for God to actually be present in our world today, and especially in, in situations of great suffering. But when I was young, I had an opportunity to meet an incredible faith leader here in our valley. And as uh, she was telling me her story, uh, she, she talked about this one moment that I think is, is from a true story. See, my friend was working in the justice system, and one night in a town not very far from here, she came across this young woman who is weeping in a jail cell. And so she stops and she talks to this woman and she begins to hear her story. And she hears how she had just recently migrated to the area and is barely learning English and how earlier that night she had found herself in this sort of compromising situation where some authorities had picked her up and had booked her on some really minor infraction. But then the young woman said that in the process of her being taken down to the station, there was this group of men that showed up and they were harassing her. And they began to threaten to pin some loaded charges on her. And so now she's in this jail cell and she doesn't know what to do. She has no family in the area. She can barely understand the language of the papers that she's being served. And she doesn't know what to do. And in that moment, the complexity of the situation was great enough that my friend admitted to me, she said, I didn't know what to do. But when that young woman's time came to appear before a judge, my friend showed up to the courtroom. And when she walked in the back, sure enough, she saw on one side of the room this big group of men, all there. It was a show of force. And on the other side of the aisle, she sees this one young woman with her interpreter and her court rep. And my friend didn't say a word. She just walked over and stood behind the young woman. And when those men saw her standing with them, and they recognized her as this pillar in the community, and all of a the sudden they began to recognize that this young woman was no longer unaccompanied but somebody with an advocate, and that day, they dropped their charges, the case was dismissed, and the young woman was released. All that just by my friend standing in her courage and her faith and her conviction. See, friends, more often than we realize or think we have time for, our faith calls us to stand with the hurting so that the lonely are not left alone. And that those who are suffering loss aren't lost to fall between the cracks. That those who are used to being let down and people not showing up for them may be lifted up and find people showing up for them. That those who doubt their dignity may find their souls feel their worth, as we sang today. And to show up, to be present, to stand with, it may seem like such a simple thing. And yet, often our excuses hold us back. I was talking to some young people this week about what they think holds back um, themselves and, and adults like mine. And uh, one young woman was telling me this week, she was saying, well, it's, it's that we all are afraid. We have our own fears that we're dealing with. And so when someone else is afraid, we're too afraid to be there for them. And then I asked the young man, and the young man said, well, it's awkward sometimes. 
to go towards these situations. He's like, I don't know what to say. Right? We know. We, we can feel these things. Some of us think, well, maybe that's someone else's job, right? I need a credential in this area to be able to do that. But here's the thing. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to find the right words as if every situation there was always something to say to. But we do feel the call from Jesus to go and stand with. In fact, when I think back to my own struggles as a young man with bouts of loneliness, I don't remember many people showing up for me because it was in their job description. And I can tell you there was never any perfect person who showed up for me. And there was rarely anyone who brought an actual quick fix of this or that for me to do. But I do remember that people of faith showed up for me and it mattered and it's what I remember. So the truth is, friends, that there are people right now, some of us in the room today, that cannot believe God is with them because people like you and like me have not been there for them. And so people continue to, satis- to settle for the unsatisfying scripts that you can get with this or you can get with that to save you and to give you value. But really, I wonder in this season if what they're waiting for is for us to believe in the promise that God really showed up as who he said he would be, Emmanuel, God with us. For us to believe that enough, that God is with us, that we would be able to move and be with them. 